now beginning John chapter 15. So um, I think that we should be able to do tackle chapter 15 in, uh, in, in just two weeks. So we should be able to get through it by the end of next week. But um, I want you to give some thought as we get into the text. I want you to give some thought to um, just the importance of the context and, and where we are and what's, what's happening in the scriptures during this time. Um, so chapter 15 comes in as a continuation of chapter 13 and 14. So um, if, if we just like very quickly, um, you may, it may just be one turn of the page over. You can, you can see kind of where we've gone over the last probably about a month or so, uh, maybe a little more uh, in chapter 13 and 14 when we um, see Jesus come in for the Passover meal with his disciples. We see uh, the betrayal of Judas, um, and, and have that whole scene that happened at the at the dinner table. Um, Jesus goes into talking with the disciples about his his impending um, arrest, death, burial, and and ultimately the promise of the Holy Spirit that will come when he leaves. And that's what we we spent some time talking about um, about last week. Um, I think it's important that we, that we draw this line of distinction that th- what's not happening here is this is not Jesus teaching a mass group of people who have been following him around. This is not the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is not Jesus in one of those times when he goes into the synagogue and takes the scroll and, and teaches. This is a very, very intimate setting at dinner with the 11 disciples because Judas has already um, dismissed himself. So it's important to hold on to who the audience is here at the time when Jesus was doing this teaching. What's different in chapter 15 than what we saw in, in chapter 13 and 14 is he was talking directly about things that were either happening or things that were about to happen. Here in chapter 15, he transitions into a parable. Um, John, the, the author of the gospel that we're studying, does not, he doesn't use the parable a lot, but this is where Jesus is actually going to use a parable to teach them about their stance. Hear me here, hear this, their stance as disciples, as, as people who are followers of the Messiah. This is not one of the times when Jesus is teaching on on the kingdom that's to come and, and people were coming and, and being healed and their lives were being drastically changed. This is talking about discipleship. What does it really, really truly mean to walk out this faith with him every, every day all along? So I think it's important to get a, get a hold of what the context is of this because there's some difficult things in it as it directly relates to people who are already following him. And you think about um, the picture of the vine and the branches. And so we're going to get into that. But, but keep in mind, as we, as we walk through this text, keep in mind, he's talking to a small group of people. And those people are his disciples. Those are followers, close followers who have walked with him. So let's get into the text. Uh, John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Uh, we're going to do the first 17 verses of this chapter tonight. So I'm going to read through it um, as we're reading. Uh, just like have your radar up for things. You know, Paul talks a lot about 
uh, when you when you hear words and phrases repeated throughout um, a text, especially in a short section, that's probably pretty important. So just as we're reading through, just kind of have your radar up for things like that. All right, John chapter 15, beginning in verse one. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he trims so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. The branch cannot itself produce fruit unless it abides on the vine. Likewise, you cannot produce fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and is dried up. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. In this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be, and, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the, as the father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that, you, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I am no longer calling you servants, for the servant does not know what, it's, what his master is doing. Now I have called you friends." Because everything I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I selected you so that you would go out and produce fruit, and your fruit would remain. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. These things I command you so that you may love one another. And we pray that God would honor the reading of his word tonight. Okay, so uh, we're going to go back up into verse one. We're just kind of kind of walk through the text, and uh, we're going to make some uh, make some notes about some things as we go throughout. Um, this is a very very strong statement that Jesus makes right out of the gate in verse one, when he says, "I am the true vine." I am the true vine. Now, this is this I am statement is the seventh I am statement that Jesus makes in the gospel of John. He, he says things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know, we, we've heard this throughout, uh, throughout the scriptures. Um, I want you to remember the significance of the I am statement. Um, that name of God that is, um, they call it unpronounceable, but it's what we know to be Yahweh or Yahuwah, the unpronounceable name of God. Do you remember what it means? It means I am that I am, or maybe more directly, I will be what I will be. So when Jesus makes these I am statements, 
I want you to remember or, or maybe realize for the first time, this is one of the main reasons the religious leaders of his time wanted him dead because he kept making statements that connected him to Yahovah, the one holy true God. So when he made the I am statements, he's saying the father and I were one. I, I am he, he is me. So when he would make I am statements such as coming right out with, I am the vine, he's making that connection of himself with the father once again. And it's so important that we remember when he'd make those statements over and over and over throughout the course of his ministry, he was making the connection of himself to the father. And it infuriated the religious leaders. It, it, was, it was blasphemy in their ears because they were, they were not looking for him. They thought they were looking for someone who was going to come and change the political landscape. And that, that's not what he came to do. So the I am statement right out of the, right out of the very gate, uh, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Um, so some translations you'll read, uh, you'll read um, my father's the gardener. Some say the vine dresser, either one of those, it's completely fine. Um, I like the ESV's use of the word vine dresser here, and I'm gonna tell you why in just, just a second. Um, but as you see, like the role between Jesus and the father here is if the father's the gardener and Jesus is the vine, and then ultimately we'll see Jesus make the make this announcement here that you're the branches. So the father's the gardener, I'm gonna be the vine, you're gonna be the branches in this little scene that we're gonna paint here for you. Um, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now I did some word study on that uh, where it says he prunes it. Because I, I know that I've heard this text taught in the past that, that pruning is, um, it's, we, we know that the, re, the reality of the scriptures goes very, very contrary to kind of the, the health and wealth gospel that's out there. Like if you just follow Jesus, everything's gonna go well. That's not really what the Bible teaches. And I know that I've heard this text taught from the standpoint of this pruning is, is some of the suffering that we go through because when you think about pruning, it's a cutting, it's a cutting away which can produce pain. Um, but a, a word study here uh, on the word prune, um, it's it, the Greek word that was translated into like pruning here is the word kathero, uh, which the first and best translation that comes up when you study the background of the word is the word clean. Okay, so let's, let's read, the, read the verse again, but we're gonna take the word prune out. We're gonna put the word clean in, okay? So it says, every branch that is in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he cleans or cleanses that it may bear more fruit. Okay, so what that, what that study led me to as I was looking at that word and going, that in my head, I do something different with the meaning of that when I put the word clean or cleanses in the place of prune. So what that caused me to do, because I'm not a gardener, 
I'm not a vine dresser and I've spent zero time at a vineyard in my life, zero. I have zero experience on the process of growing grapes or really anything. We've got some rose bushes in, in our front yard uh, the, the rose bushes that grow really, really tiny roses, you know, the ones I'm talking about. Uh, so when Susan and I were in college and we were dating, uh, on the campus where we, where we were both living in the dorms, there was one of those rose bushes out there at the corner. So when I would go up to her dorm, uh, I would always grab one of those little roses off the, I know, Miss Betty, I, see, I know. So I would grab one of those little roses off of that little tiny rose bush, and I would take it into her. Well, she still has all of those. She would go and she would take them and she put them in this little box that she had. To this day, she still has those little roses. And so when we built this house that we're living in now, we had, we had no input on the planting of the, of the flower beds that were put in and stuff. And then the first time they, they grew and bloomed, we realized they were the little bitty tiny Roses that were, I know, like it's too much. I don't know why, but that's what it was. So, so we have those things. But you know, rose bushes have to be cut back periodically, or they just, I mean, they just grow like crazy. They'll just expand and expand and expand, and they'll fill up an entire flower bed if, if you don't do that. And the other benefit is that when you do cut them back, the blooms come, the more blooms come back. They, they come back, when they come back in the next time, there'll be even more blooms, even though the bush is smaller. That much I do know. I don't know anything at all about, you know, like in my head, when he gives us this picture, he tells this par- parable about, about the vine and, and, and the branches and the fruit that comes. In my head, it's always grapes. I don't know, is anybody with me on that? Okay, so in my head, it's grapes. So what I did in, in my study this week is I went back and just pulled some stuff about growing grapes. I mean, there's YouTube videos and there's, there's like groups that you can join if you just recently bought a vineyard and you don't know what you're doing. You can join these groups and there's people that ask questions and people give feedback. So I went back and looked at some of those things. The impact of this word saying that, um, and that's why I said that I love the, the ESV's uh, use of the word vine dresser in the place of gardener, because in my head growing up, a gardener was somebody completely different. You know, like my, my grandpa had a huge garden that he did every year. And I know that he did these kind of things, but like when I think about gardening, it's us down on our hands and knees in in that East Texas red clay trying to make things grow. But this idea of the vine dresser was a completely different image to me in the context of the vineyard. And as I went through and did some study and looking and like, what, how do they do this? What is, what's the difference? What would it look like, the difference between pruning, where we think about what I do and what really mama does more of it, but what we do with the rose bushes when we go and we actually clip those things off versus cleaning them. And the difference being that the vine dresser in a vineyard will go and walk their vineyard and section by section they will look at, and oftentimes they have like a little thing of water where they'll go through and look at every cluster, every place that it could be, and they'll spray water on the leaves 
that are gonna ultimately produce fruit. And they may, like as they look at it, there may be pieces where you go, that's not good, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that out. Or this is gonna be okay, but I'm gonna, they, they will actually physically clean leaves around where clusters will grow. And depending on what the climate is, where your vineyard is growing, they may want to have more leaves around where the cluster is, or they may want to have fewer leaves. If you're in a place with a high climate, there are vineyards in, in Texas that you can go around and see. In a place like this where there's high climate, they'll keep more leaves around the cluster because it protects the fruit Whereas in places that have a cooler climate, they'll trim back or push back the leaves away from the cluster so that they get more of the direct sun. So it's, but it's a very, very fine-tuned process. It's very detailed, the thing that the vine dresser will do to protect the cluster, but also to help the cluster produce more fruit. So when it says here in, in, um, in verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The pruning that happens in a vineyard happens in the fall. And what the vine dresser does is goes through and looks at the produce, like what, what produced here and what didn't produce here. And when they come to a branch that didn't produce anything that particular harvest season, it gets cut away. That branch, that one branch, if it didn't produce during that harvest season, they cut it away. It's only done during the fall time because they wanna see what the, like what, what were the results of what we did, but if it didn't produce, I don't, I don't need it to be there anymore. Now, as we talk about this part of, of, of the cutting away, and then later we, we, when we read all the way through it, and you can kind of re, re go, um, recall this, and we're gonna look at it again, but it talks about things being cut off and then ultimately being thrown into the fire. Remember the context of who he's speaking to. He's talking to believers. This is, not, this is not a discussion about losing salvation. But there is an issue, there is something that has to be handled here about those who turn away and break fellowship with the Father, okay? And so if we're not producing fruit, it's not because he's not good, if that's never the case. If we're not producing fruit, it's because we're not walking in the power of the Father. That's where cutting away happens. That's where ultimately what could be judgment, but also it could be like you walk through a time because you're being disobedient to the Father, you walk through a time where you're just simply not being blessed by him because of the way you're living. So there, there, is a, there is a portion of this that is like, yes, there's some suffering that can come. There's some, there's some cutting away that can happen, but it's not because he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. We've, we've turned away. We've broken, we've broken fellowship. Therefore, we can't produce fruit. And he makes that clear here as well. So 
I, I like the distinction that's drawn there between, um, in, in the language between prune, like what happens when you're being pruned, but also that cleansing. And, and just simply replacing the English word that we have there where it says, every branch that doesn't bear fruit, he prunes, but he, he cleans it. Why? That it may bear more fruit. This is, this is talking about it's producing fruit, but I'm gonna clean it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take care of the things that are around it, where the fruit is coming out, not because I'm not pleased with it, but because I want it to bear more fruit. That's, that's the goal. And I think that what he's pushing the disciples to here is this abundance that comes in the life when we walk with him intimately. And that's what carries out throughout this chapter as well. Um, okay, verse three. And this is just, I don't know why, but this verse, and it may have been brought more to me as I looked at that word, um, that kathero word, because this is the same word that's used in verse three. It's just transliterated a little bit different, but it's the same root where he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Same word the one that was translated prune in, in verse two, it's the same word that's used in, in verse three. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So in this, in this picture of the vineyard and the vine dresser coming and, and, and making things set correctly to maximize the fruit that grows, in our spiritual lives, what is the cleansing that happens there? What cleans us? What does he say? The word does. Already you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Every word that came out of the mouth of Jesus Christ came directly from the Father to them. He's saying, you're already clean because of the words that I've spoken to you. We're gonna tie this back to the end of chapter 14 as we get, out, get down to this. But, but I want us to, as we go through this, even as we're looking at tonight's text, was to hold on to that reality that it's the word of God that cleanses us. That, that's what does it. And you're gonna see this tied back over and over and over and over again. It was obviously an, an important message from Jesus. So just the question in verse three, um, who cleans us and how? Well, it's God cleans us and he uses his word to do so. All right, verse four, let's keep going. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So, this, uh, this word that's used here. And, and I hope that that was what you heard when we read through the whole text from tonight. I hope that you heard that word come up over and over and over again. You know, how many times by chance did anybody look at it and count? How many times did the word abide come up? I think, it's, I think if I remember correctly, it was like 11 times in the first 10 verses or something like that, the word abide is used. So if we use that, if we use that Bible study principle that we talk about a lot, that when something's repeated over and over again, and especially in a short amount of time, that that's probably really, really important for us. 
Um, this is one of those. I'm gonna grab one of these notes pages because on the uh, notes page that I put on the table tonight, um, it's got the text, but I, I gave some areas for notes and also just kind of added a few questions in there. Uh, down at the bottom, it says abide X. Like how many times was, was um, the word abide used there? Um, so in verse, uh, in verse four, uh, the word that is translated as abide is the word mino. Um, and, and looking into that word um, really allowed me to understand why Jesus used the word abide so many times here. Um, it carries with it the idea of, of uh, like settling in, uh, establishing a dwelling place, but also it carries with it the idea of marrying someone. And, and we know that the church is the bride of Christ. And, and that picture of the husband and, and the wife comes up through the scriptures over and over and over again. This word abide is the picture of marriage. It's, it's coming to a point, settling in, establishing a dwelling and, and living there, living in that union forever. That's, that's the picture of the word that was translated as abide in our, in our English translation. Um, and again, it's used over and over again and out the, uh, throughout this text, abide in me and I in you. So it, it's when we abide in him, he abides in us also. How? How does he, especially like you think about the, the context of this, the disciples just heard him say, I'm going to go away. So, so physically in body, Jesus is leaving them. But yet right now he's teaching them and saying, abide in me, dwell here, stay here with me. And he says, abide in me and I will abide in you. That's a promise. What's, what is the fulfillment of this promise? It's exactly what he already told them that the Ruach Kodesh is going to come. The Holy Spirit is going to come live inside of you. So when you abide in me, I'm going to abide in you. I'm gonna live there with you. Create that dwelling, stay in that place. Verse five, he makes it very plain what he's saying. He says, because up to this point, he's saying, he's giving this picture about vines and branches. The vine does this, the branch does this. The vine dresser does this. When the vine does this, this is what the branch does. If the branch doesn't do this, this is what happens. In verse five, he makes it very, very plain to them because again, what we know about the disciples is sometimes they had a hard time grabbing onto the things that Jesus was teaching. So he makes it plain in verse five. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you're wondering about these things, these mysteries that I'm giving you, I'm going to make it plain to you. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And this was the verse that as Susan shared earlier. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The things that ultimately Jesus was asking his disciples to do, 
if you and I were asked to do the same things, we might feel like we were being asked to produce apples when we're being given cherry seed. The things that ultimately he was asking his disciples to do, even though he was leaving, they were going to usher in the kingdom of God. They were going to establish his church. They were going to take this gospel to the world. I can only imagine what it felt like to be one of 11 people receiving the commissioning that he was giving. And I'm sure it felt impossible. It probably felt like producing apples when you're given cherry seeds. But what he said in verse five is what carries the weight. He's making it plain to him. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Again, like we talked about, we are... We're talking about the audience of the disciples. Is he giving a message to them that if you don't bear fruit, I'm throwing you in hell? Is that the message that we're receiving here? Remember, one of the very elemental um, understandings of, of Bible study method is that you interpret scripture with scripture. When you bump up against things that you have these questions about, you can interpret scripture with scripture. So what is the common theme of what you're looking at? We know that this is said over and over and over again, that my father who's greater than I, he gives them to me and no man can pluck them from my hand. Jesus says things like that. So would Jesus on one side say, the ones that my father gives me, I put them in my hand and nobody can pluck them from my hand. But in the other side, if you don't bear fruit, I'm throwing you in hell. Okay, it doesn't line up. The message doesn't connect. But we do know that there is a way that as a believer that I could walk in disobedience and not be bearing fruit. The scripture says that there are those who escape as by fire, like escaping the flames. They get in, Man, it's just like they're sliding in. There, there is pruning. There is discipline. There is something that nobody likes to talk about. There is something called judgment that, that can fall into the lap of those who walk in disobedience to the Father. That's a, that's a real thing. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Like, the ones that get cut off, that's what we do when we cut back our rose bushes. We cut them things back and then that stuff is all piled up over there and we scoop that thing up and we go put it in the trash. Huh? Sometimes they go in the house for a little bit because we like to look at them. That's right, yeah. 
that's a, that's a very real part of, of this process. Things get cut off and thrown away. Verse seven, if you abide in me, and what does it say there? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We're gonna get to it, but you may have heard it in the initial reading. It's two different times in, in these 17 verses that we're looking at, two different times that he says, you ask something of me in my name, I will give it to you. Is that name it and claim it theology? But what he said is, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you need in my name and it'll be done for you. If his word is dwelling inside of you, your prayers are not going to be for a new fancy car and a large house, right? I mean, that's, that's where, like, I think that sometimes we just have to use a little bit of common sense in, in applying the scriptures to our own lives. And saying, what, what is it that he wants from my life? You know, we've talked about that when we look at, our, at the things that we have, and we say that everything that we have was given to us as a gift by the Father in order to push back darkness in the world, like when we look at our possessions in that way, these things I have are given to me by God to push back darkness in the world. That's why, that's why I have a job. That's why I have a house. That's why I have a car. Like those material things, even the, the most material thing you can think of, it was given to you by him to glorify him. So I, we can't get off the rails too far into this thing of, well, you said that anything that I ask in your name will be given to me. But then like, if we don't look at it on the selfish side that we have a tendency to do, but what about the things that we ask of him that are not selfish, that, are, that we're asking for someone else. I don't know how many prayers I've prayed earnestly when, when seeking him through his word and crying out to him on behalf of someone who needs healing from cancer. Only to, in a week's time, be sitting in the funeral service for that person that I begged God to heal. Has anybody else experienced this in life? It, it, gets, hard to, it gets hard to reckon those things. Because Father, you said like, if, that if I will abide in you and I abide in your word, I know that you're abiding in me and that we ask that it'll be done for us. And, and those are... Those are some of the most difficult conversations to have, like gospel-centered conversations to have with people who struggle with faith because that's what they want to know, right? Where was your God? I, 
I still, as, as silly, I guess, as it seems at times, because I'm not, you know, I'm not your high priest, right? Pastor Paul is not your high priest. We are, as you, sinners saved by grace. The same Holy Spirit that fills me up fills you up. But as silly as it may seem, I still have people that will come to me and say things like, um, I'm assuming your prayers work better than mine, so will you, will you pray for this thing? Or I, I, bet, I bet God listens to you more than he listens to me, so I want you to pray for this thing. And it's heartbreaking to me every time I hear it for a couple of reasons. One, like theologically, it's, it's a wreck. <laughs> it doesn't, there's nothing about me that makes me more favored by God than you. So there's that side of it. But then the other side of it that just breaks my heart is that when we ask in prayer and in our head, the correct answer is yes, but the answer we get is no, that those people then might hold my God responsible for something that they thought I should be able to do because of him. Does that make sense? That it would, it would damage their ability to believe or, or come to faith because they asked me to petition my God on their behalf and they got a no when they were expecting a yes. It's incredibly difficult. We can look at situations logically and go, the world's broken. Everything around us is, is broken. So, for us to just assume things will work right or the way we want them to is a fallacy because the world's broken. Like even the way that the rhythm with which God created things, that rhythm was broken when we chose the created thing over the creator. And we still do that all the time. So when bad things happen, the reality is bad things happen because the world's broken. Can God heal cancer at the word of his mouth? Absolutely he can. I believe it. I ask for it. I acknowledge him and praise him when he does it. but there are also bigger things that you and I can't see. And we can't begin to fathom why certain things go this way when other things go this way. So this thing about prayer that Jesus brings up two different times in the, in the shortened text that we're looking at tonight, two different times that he says, ask it in my name and it'll be done. 
I, I don't have answers for people when they say, why didn't your God respond? Why, why did your God allow that evil man to go into that school and shoot it up? Why did your God allow the plane to fall out of the sky? Why did your God allow the bridge to collapse? Those are very, very real questions that people ask. And I don't have answers for other than the world's broken. With a bunch of broken people running around and bumping into other broken people. I know that he's going to fix it, though. He's going to set it right. But we're not living in that, that time where he's done that yet. But I trust him. I have faith. I believe in him. It's the only thing I can do. And, and, and honestly, that's how I respond to those questions. It's not perfect. It doesn't really answer the question, the, the deep-rooted part, because the deep-rooted part's in the person's heart where they want to blame I can't fix that. I can't fix their heart. But Jesus can. So we trust him and we lean into him. Um, let's move to verse eight. We're going to verse eight. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so proved to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. I find it interesting too here because we, we talk about the fruit that's, that's being bared by the branch. It's not just about bearing fruit though. Over and over he says to bear much fruit, like an abundance of fruit. This, there's, this an, there's this abundance thing that happens throughout the scriptures that we're being pushed into that I don't think we walk in very much. That we, we miss abundance. We, ha, we as a people have a tendency to settle for a little. And, and oftentimes the things that we settle for, settle for are far less than what he has in store for us. We, we get so limited in that. What does it look like to walk with him in such a way that, that the fruit that you bear is much, much fruit, that you'll bear much fruit? Not just a little bit, not just enough for your house, but there's an overflow of it. There's an abundance of it that it reaches out to your neighbors and into your community and your state and your country and the world that it reaches out. And I think that's, that's what he's calling us to and pushing us to. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Hold on to that, that abide in my love. I think we miss that. It's that ability to set, to dwell deeply the concept or the idea of being married to his love and just establishing a dwelling right there in his love. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, 
you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So, you know, just a question that popped in, you know, will, will we abide in his love? If so, how? How are we going to abide in his love? He tells us. It's his word. Again, you're cleansed by his word. Now we're going to learn to abide in his love because of his word, by keeping his word, by holding it high, holding it in reverence, and living underneath it, bringing our lives in line with his word. That's what he said he's done with the Father. That's how he abides in the Father's love, is by keeping his commandments. And that's how we abide in his love. We've, we've got to be married to the word of God. We've got to be in this thing. Or else how do we know? How, how do we know that we're, we're living and abiding deeply and richly in his love. It's through his word. This is the revealed word of God to us. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Just in this, as I was studying, I always think it's important when we see the word joy throughout the scriptures, it's always important for us to draw the line of distinction between joy and happiness. Because like we, we always want to remember that happiness is conditional, right? Happiness has to do with the circumstances of your life, whereas joy is deep-rooted. Meaning even if the circumstances of life get chaotic and spin out of control, that you still have joy because of him. And what he's saying here in, uh, in verse 11, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. The same joy that Jesus has because of his connection, because he's abiding in the Father's love, he wants that joy to be in us so that it can be perfect, it can be complete. This, this is a difficult conversation, too, to have with someone who might say something like, well, don't you think God wants me to be happy? People have a tendency to say those types of things when they want to justify something that they're doing in their life. Don't you think God wants me to be happy? I don't, I don't see that in the scriptures. He wants you to be full of joy. But joy and happiness are not always the same thing. You can be joyful and happy. You can be. That, that could be a situation in your life. But you can also be joyful when the circumstances of your life do not make you happy. And that's, that's different. That's, that's what we call gospel hope. Gospel hope is what allows you to hold on to joy when the world is chaotic around you. All right, moving into verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that somebody lay down his life for his friends. Um, we know the disciples probably didn't have a really, really firm 
definitely not a full understanding of what he was saying about greater love has no one than this that you lay down your life for your friends because he was physically about to lay down his life, right? But the disciples, the, the hearers of this message at that time didn't have a full understanding of that. Like Jesus told them it was going to happen, but we know by their response when he's arrested, when the trial is going on, the, the way they responded to that thing and ultimately his death, that they really didn't understand it fully what he was saying at this time. But what they did have was a picture of this that he had already painted for them just a couple of chapters ago when he washed their feet. That's the picture of what he's saying here. When Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, because remember Peter, like, Peter tried to make him stop. Like, no, like, I should wash your feet, right? But what he was doing was painting this picture. There is no greater love than when a man lays down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus was doing when he washed feet. And there, there are so many tangible ways you could, I mean, you could just start making a list of things that you could do, tangible ways that you as an individual could lay down your life for your friends. I mean, ultimately, it, it, it very well could come that somebody at some point has to physically lay down their life for someone, but I don't know that that's what Jesus is talking about here. There, there are... I am not a superhero. We love superhero movies in my house, but you know what? I'm, I'm not one. I used to have the boys convinced that I, maybe I was Superman, but I'm not. I don't know that I would ever have to lay down my life for a group of people to save, to save people or whatever the case may be. I know that I have a collection of people that I love deeply that I would be willing to lay down my life for it at any given moment, like my physical life, I would, I'd be willing to die for people. And, and I would love to say that anybody that can hear my voice right now, that I would be willing to die for you. But ultimately, when it comes right down to it, would I? <laughs> I hope so, but I don't know because I'm broken, just like the rest of you. I'd like to be able to say, yes, I could do that, but then in the moment, would I? I don't know. But I think we could all come up with a bunch of really tangible things, like real, real, real things that we could do for other people to show that laying down of our life, where we, we humble ourselves to serve people. That's... That's the picture that Jesus is painting here and says that there's no greater love in the world than our willingness to lay down our lives for people. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I commanded you. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. 
And he's telling like, when the father speaks, I'm telling you, I'm telling you what's going on. I'm telling you where we're going. I'm, I'm trying to lay out for you how life works best inside the kingdom. The things the father reveals to me, I'm giving to you. And you're my friends. That's how I'm showing that we're connected. You're not just servants of mine, but I've called you friends. Can't imagine what that moment was like for the disciples. That as they understood that they were serving the Messiah and that he then would humble himself like the God of all creation would humble himself to wash their feet. We're in the same setting as that. I know that's been several weeks back when we studied that text, but we're in the same setting. In, in, in the reality of what we've been looking over, this is, I don't know, maybe half an hour later from when he washed their feet. And then for him to call them friend. You're not my servant, you're my friend friend. What a powerful moment that must have been. All that I have heard from the Father, I have made known to you. And I love verse 16. Look, guys, you didn't choose me. I chose you. If you have ever been rejected at any point in your life, And when you think of, again, think of the listeners, think of the hearers of this message at that time, those 11 people. Do you think a tax collector and a bunch of fishermen had ever been rejected at some point in their life? I can tell you that by, by their career, we know that they were rejected when they were 12, right? Because the children were put in Torah school and only the ones who showed an intellectual aptitude were moved on from that into careers where they would go into being, yes, and into studying studying the law, making that a practice or ultimately becoming servants in that way. Everybody else was cut loose to go be carpenters, fishermen, could ultimately end up as a, as a tax collector who everybody hated, right? So I'm telling you like a group of rejects, every one of them. And, and you've, there's probably been a time in your life where you felt rejected by someone, an organization, a, a, a job that you had. Somebody just said, we're good. It's a hard pass for me. For Jesus to look at you and go, hey, all this stuff that we've been doing, you know, when, when, when I saw you, I, we had the encounter, I was walking by and I told you to, Put your nets down, and from now on, you'll be fishers, man. Like, you didn't choose me. You didn't, you didn't make a choice to follow me. You may have felt like you did, but the reality is I chose you. And how about having the Savior of the universe point at you and say, I chose you? 
Again, everybody within the sound of my voice, he's looked at you and says, I chose you. You didn't, you didn't choose me. Look, guys, you didn't choose this life. You didn't choose this. I chose you. <laughs> there's, not, there's not a better message, I don't think. I mean, that, that is the gospel. I chose you. And you think about that coming from Jesus to say, I chose you. If anybody in your life, in any circumstance, says, I choose you, from the time that you were little and you're lined up at PE and getting ready to play kickball, Somebody choosing you feels great to finding a spouse and them saying, I choose you. That's what an incredible feeling to roll it out to your, your job and somebody going, yes, I choose you. Like we had all these applicants and I chose you. It, it always feels good to be chosen. But to know that the God that created literally everything that you see pointed at you and said, I choose you. Today, and then I'll choose you again tomorrow in the day of, and in the times when you turn away from me, I still choose you. Those, those branches that were cut away and thrown out, guess what? He still chooses them. There's not a time when he doesn't choose us. Time and time again and over and over again, he chooses and like to just look at those 11 and say, look, guys, you didn't, you didn't choose this life. You didn't, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And what we know from the context of scripture, he chose you from the foundation of the world. There wasn't a moment, there wasn't a moment that came up that all of a sudden he looked at you and go, oh, you know what, I see something there. I'm, I wasn't sure about that one, but now I see that maybe there's something there. He chose you from the foundation of the world. He has always chosen you forever and will continue to do so. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. I want to I close out our time tonight by jumping back up into the very last verse in chapter 14 that we looked at last week. And this, like, it made, it made this week's study and this time sweeter for me. And I want to draw our attention back to it really quickly because it ties all of this together. In, uh, in chapter 14, verse 31, 
Remember last week we were talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You remember what Jesus said about the Spirit, like what, is, what he's going to do? What did you say? Yeah, what his job was. Do you, do you remember when Jesus said, what did he say that the Spirit was going to do? He's going to teach us and he's going to remind us what the Word of God says, Right? So we were talking to somebody this week, and as I was thinking about that, you, have you ever had that time when you're having a conversation with somebody and like uh, you're talking about Christ, and all of a sudden like you quote scripture or something? And you're like, man, I didn't even know I knew that thing, right? Do you know that that's direct evidence of the Spirit's work in your life, and it's it's part of the fulfilled promise that Jesus made about the Holy Spirit. He said the Holy Spirit's going to teach you and remind you what the word of God says. So he's coming off of that teaching about the spirit. And then in, verse, uh, in, in chapter 14, verse 31, it says, but I do, I wanna read it out of the Tree of Law version because man, man, it just really hit me. He says, but in order that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. So that the world will know that I am a follower of Yahovah, I do everything that he commanded me to do. Now, when the vine dresser is doing the work on the vine, what is that thing, that process that he did? We said that he, it's... Prune's okay, but the better word there is he's cleansing it, right? He's cleaning it. And then it says that we are made, he says, you're already clean, why? Because of the words that I've spoken to. Well, who is doing the speaking? It's Jesus, it's, it's God the Son who's doing the speaking. He said, because the words I've spoken to you, you're clean. Well, that's, that's these words, you're, you're purified, you're cleansed by the word. And then what Jesus said in chapter 14, verse 31, but in order that the world may know that I love the Father. And listen, that's why you were created. You were created so that the world would know that you love the Father. You realize, like, that's your, that's your purpose, to bring glory to God. It's why you were made. And what Jesus said is, so that the world will know that I love the Father, I'm going to do everything he commanded me to do. It's, it's obedience. It's a statement of obedience that Jesus is making about his love for the Father and that he wants the world to know that he loves the Father. But I'm telling you, you can, re, you can directly relate that to your life. I want the world to know that I love the Father. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do what he told me to do right? And, and this, this line of distinction that's drawn because of, because of our pursuit of holiness will show the world that we love the Father, that will draw a distinction. Because listen, holiness, holiness is not the standard anymore. There, there are so many different standards that have, well, maybe maybe the definition of what the standard of holiness is has changed. But what has not changed is the word of God. 
apart from knowing his word, we are going to continue to miss the mark on serving him and being able to show the world that we love him. John chapter 15, and we'll finish it next week, but John chapter 15 is a chapter on discipleship. We don't need like a discipleship program. We need to study deeply John chapter 15. This is, this is the discipleship program. Fall in love with the word of God and be cleaned by it and the world will understand the amount of love that you have for everyone else, but specifically for your father. You remember we talked about a few weeks back about, um, you know, something can, something can be hard but not complicated. I think it may have been, um, it may have been Dave Ramsey in one of his books that I listened to where he, he talked about, you know, like these principles are hard, but they're not complicated. You know, like something can be very uncomplicated and still be very, very hard. <laughs> Right? Those are, it's like the thing about joy and happiness. Those are not necessarily the same things. Complicated and, and hard are not necessarily the same things. The, the things that, that our God is calling us to are not complicated. They, they go beyond space and time. And, and in fact, they're actually eternal both eternity past and eternity future. It's not complicated. It doesn't mean it's not hard, though. It's hard to walk some of these things out. And when you, when you see um, what it was like for the nation of Israel to be in captivity. And you, you study the, the number of times that they were in the land, they were doing their thing, and then boom, judgment fell. They were taken into captivity. They were in captivity for however long, and then you know, God gave them the opportunity to go back in, and then they screwed it up again, and they were taken into captivity, and they went through this cycle of things. Um. For, for God's people living in captivity during those times, it's incredibly difficult for them to walk out their faith the way they were called to do so because they had specific things that, they, that God had asked them to do. And we talk about the Torah and we talk about you know, those 613 laws or whatever the number is there and, and those things and how few of those things that could actually be done today because why? Wow, we're, not, we're not in the land. There's no temple in place. So like so many of them that can't even be done. But for those people who had lived in it, they had lived in the land, 
They had been in that setting where the temple was in place, the sacrificial system was in place, the the priests were doing their activities daily, and they were walking in that, and the presence of God was dwelling inside of that place. For people who had lived life that way and experienced that, only to be taken into captivity and go live in Babylon, Can you imagine how difficult it was for them to walk out their faith when everything had had crashed in around them and to be able to connect to that? And and, and I, I draw some distinction between where we live, like whether it be you look at it from the standpoint of just, just Westernism, like Western civilization that we live in, where life is so insulated, we've got so many plans for the way things can go and we've got contingency plans for when it doesn't go right that way. We insulate life so much that we don't even really need God to do anything for us. But but then you roll it out like at a bigger level and, and, and we think about, the different challenges that we have as a nation right now. I I, I draw this distinction between us trying to live out this biblical kingdom mindset here where we live and and maybe some of the struggles that Israel had when they were in Babylon. Nothing looks like what you think it should look like. So, Is walking this stuff out difficult? Yes, because there are systems set up around us to make it really, really challenging on us. Is it complicated? Mm -mm. Because the instructions are here. How, How life works best are in the pages of an eternal book. God's revealed word of God, where he gave it to us, that this is how life works. It's not complicated. It's difficult. But here's the thing. If we were given an advantage in this, when Israel was in captivity to Babylon, they wanted to get back into the land. They wanted to rebuild the temple. Why? so that God would come dwell among his people again, right? What Jesus just finished unpacking to the disciples and we know is that the presence of God indwells us. So while we may be in captivity in Babylon, the spirit of the living God is inside of us. We carry him with us. He's there to teach us and to remind us what the word of God says. Can we be reminded of things that we never knew? That's difficult. He's a God of miracles, but that's difficult. We need the word of God. We we need to dwell deeply in the word of God so that when we're walking through life, the spirit of God can remind you what he said. That's super, super important. That's that cleansing. That's the vine dresser coming through and looking at the fruit that you're producing 
and making it just right to maximize that cluster. That's what he's doing. But he does that through his word. 